You're listening to Gleanings, the monthly newsletter from Strategies at Work, podcast edition. Today's episode is titled, The Importance of Biblical Illiteracy. This morning, I want to teach out of Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 36. The title is Formation of the Ecclesia Explained. God is the creator of both the heavens and the earth, two different but compatible realms of reality. In the Old Testament era, the intersection of the heavens and earth was the temple. In the New Testament, the temple is no longer a physical structure, but a spiritual structure, the ecclesia. The transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament era was marked by the advent of Christ, the redeemer and savior of mankind, and a change in power source for the people of God. The Old Testament ecclesia was based on human potency, but the New Testament ecclesia is based on divine potency. Because of total depravity, human potency is salvifically impotent. Without divine potency, mankind is doomed to eternal death and unable to effectively obey the creation mandate of Genesis 1, 26 through 28. But with the divine potency of the New Testament era, Mankind has eternal life and empowerment to obey this mandate as never before. The coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was the inaugural event that commenced the divine empowerment of the New Testament era. On the day of Pentecost, there were Jewish people who lived in various parts of the world and spoke various native languages. The indigenous and dispersed Jews had in common the same ethnicity and biblical literacy. Though the Jewish people failed miserably to obey the Mosaic law, they did know the Mosaic law. In addressing the crowd from whom the first ecclesia came forth, Peter presumed that they were biblically literate. His singular explanation for the phenomena experienced on the day of Pentecost was based on the Old Testament scripture. The hearers of Peter's message had to be biblically literate and submitted to biblical authority for Peter's explanation to be credible. In current times, biblical authority and literacy are rare for people groups. Explanation of reality based on scripture would therefore be incredulous. Chapter 2 of Acts contains the inaugural event of the formation of the New Testament Ecclesia. The legacy work of Jesus, the passion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus were preparatory events for the coming of the Holy Spirit as a divine indwelling personal agent given to people of God. The story that unfolds of the formation and growth of the New Testament Ecclesia is rooted in Old Testament scripture and is based on a historical narrative. It is not a fictional story. It is based on real historical events. The veracity of Christianity rests on the historical foundations, particularly the reality of the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Without this event, There is no Christianity and there is no salvation from the penalty of sin and death. So now I want to read the text, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14 through verse 36. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them, Fellow Jews and all of you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. 
On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. And then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on your servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David, who is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since we've been, he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heavens, but he himself says, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, Let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, we're going to see as we go through Acts chapter two of the four step process of getting to making the right choices in life. The first step in that process is you have to see reality correctly. And we're going to see that first here in this first session. First section here, verses 14 through 21, we're going to see reality now connecting reality to the meta narrative, connecting reality to the Old Testament, the prophetic words of the Old Testament. And then we're going to see, as we see reality, then we're going to let the Holy Spirit teach us what reality means through the Old Testament. So you have to see it, you have to understand it. And once you understand it, you can draw right conclusions. And once you've drawn right conclusions, you can make right choices. So this four-step process, or three steps to getting to right choices, we're going to go through that in Acts chapter 2. The section we're looking at today will take us through the first three steps. That is, you have to see reality correctly. 
then you have to understand reality. And finally, you have to make you have to draw the right conclusions. Next time, we'll talk about making the right choice in light of this. So how does one explain the presumed illiterate Galileans who declare the magnificent acts of God in the Hebraic, non-Hebraic languages of the Jews and proselytes dispersed in various parts of the world? The Galileans were accused of being drunk. That would be a naturalistic way to explain what they were experiencing that day on the day of Pentecost when you have all of these people speaking in tongues that they should not know, speaking of the wonders of God, and all these people there, the Jews that were there, many of them were not indigenous Jews. They were part of the dispersion. So they lived in various parts of the world, and they spoke different languages in addition to Hebrew. And so these Galileans, who were considered to be fairly illiterate people, we're speaking these various languages, and of course, it would be a quandary. How could they know these languages? Well, Peter is going to provide the explanation. First, without hesitation, he debunks the idea that they were drunk. And instead, he offers them a, a biblical explanation. In a world today, such explanations, that is, biblical explanations, would have no standing. But in the first century, biblical explanations were credible because people then not only did they know the Bible, but they valued the Bible. Now, that's very different from today, because today, basically, people don't either know the Bible and they don't value the Bible. In fact, today, people a priori, that is before experience, reject explanations of reality based on Scripture. They only accept explanations based on natural cause and effect. So that is our world today. So it's very difficult for us to connect with how the people back then thought because they thought so differently. A priori, they assumed that the Bible was God's revelation and they knew it and they submitted to it. So then to explain this event, Peter cited the prophet Joel, an Old Testament minor prophet who lived during the ninth century BC. Peter used the this is that explanation. In other words, he's pointing to this phenomena that they're seeing that day of these Galatians, these Galileans speaking in tongues, speaking in these languages that they didn't know, communicating about God and the magnificent works of God. He's saying, what you're seeing, you know, this is that, that Joel referred to. Joel talked about a time when God's spirit would be poured out on all people. And the Old Testament ecclesia they failed to obey the law and needed redemption from judgment. But in the New Testament, salvation belongs to those who are empowered by the Spirit. This is the beginning of this reality of the empowerment by the Spirit. That's what you're seeing. This is that. So that's the starting point. You have to recognize when you're seeing reality, you have to see the spiritual significance of what's going on, the spiritual roots of what's going on. If all you see is the natural, you don't see reality. You may see some facts, but you don't see the real reality behind them. So the first step in seeing reality is always seen with metaphysical awareness. That is seen from God's perspective, seen based on the word of God. Now he wants to go on to understand this reality. So Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24, let me read that again to you. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. 
This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. The historical knowledge of Jesus, without a doubt, the people in Jerusalem knew of his existence and the supernatural nature of his life. They also knew of his death at the hands of the religious leaders who manipulated the political leaders into doing their bidding. It was also known that Jesus was from Nazareth, a town in Galilee, not a highly regarded region, and many of Jesus's principal followers were also from Galilee. It was these Galileans whom the Holy Spirit empowered to speak languages that they did not know on the day of Pentecost. This was a sign that validated them as messengers of God. Now, please note that the way God works, signs and wonders are not intended to validate God. They're intended to validate God's message and his messengers. Now, notwithstanding the humble place of origin of Jesus and his apostles, the truth of Jesus' supernatural identity and purpose was attested to by well-known miracles. Miracles are things like physical healings and demonic deliverances. And wonders would be things like Jesus' interaction with the theologians of his days at age 12, when he wowed them with his ability to deal with theological issues at such a young age. And signs might be things like Jesus walking on water or feeding the multitude. In Peter's explanation, he appealed to the listeners' empirical knowledge of Jesus. In other words, they would have known of many, if not all of these things that I've just listed and connected Jesus to the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. Now that they probably didn't connect those dots. They didn't see the this is that on that particular point. This was a powerful argument for biblically literate people. They had a lot of knowledge, both of Jesus and of scripture. And what Peter's doing here is connecting the dots. And one of the most scary things is Peter's providing an explanation about the death of Christ that puts the responsibility for his death squarely on the Jews. However, notwithstanding their nefarious act, God was not surprised. Rather, God used their sin to accomplish his purpose as evidenced by the resurrection of Jesus, to which his apostles now bore witness. So you see, God is always redeeming. He is a redeeming God, even when we are out of order and in sin. The resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity. The 120 who spoke in tongues on this day, on this first day of the New Testament Ecclesia, were all witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. The reality of his bodily resurrection was empirically verified by his followers through sense perception. They saw him. They touched with him, touched him. They ate with him. They were with him. They were eyewitnesses of this reality. This is probably the greatest way in which they fulfilled Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Most of us, we, we read Acts 1, 8, and we think of that's the commission for world evangelism. No, it's a commission to bear witness to the reality of the resurrection. Because if there is no resurrection, we are still dead in our trespasses and sins.
Verse 23 is a remarkable text that harmonizes the apparent conflict between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Two seemingly contradictory concepts, but fully compatible in Scripture. Let me read that verse again. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. This is a conundrum of Christianity, not the only one, but certainly a big one. How could God hold men responsible for sin when their sin accomplished God's will? Shouldn't God give mankind a pass when their sin is used to serve his purpose? Peter offered no such comfort. Contrary to human reasoning, the sovereignty of God expressed through foreknowledge and by implication for ordination does not relieve mankind of his responsibility to obey God. This means that the sovereignty of God is true and human responsibility is true at the same time and in the same relationship. This is indeed difficult for us to comprehend. Another conundrum of Christianity is the resurrection, the very linchpin of Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus is the confirmation of the acceptance of the work of Jesus as the basis for human justification before God. Historically, it is essential, as the Apostle Paul stated. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. The greatest sense of being a witness of Jesus was a testimony of the followers of Jesus who were his eyewitnesses. They witnessed his resurrection. Credibility of their testimony was enhanced by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost that enabled the Galilean followers of Jesus, who were held in low esteem, to speak in languages that they did not know. Now, continuing in verses 25 through 35, he wants to continue to expand on understanding reality correctly. Remember, you have to see it correctly. You have to have metaphysical awareness, and then you have to understand it. And Peter's showing them the understanding based on Scripture. So he's going to go into two more Old Testament Scriptures here to explain and to help them understand what's really going on on this first day of Pentecost. So Peter cites Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. And he interpreted the, the phrase the Lord as a reference to Jesus. So let me just read this text real quickly to you again. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. And here's what David said. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. So if that's true, that means by inference, he had to be resurrected. So it's interesting to see how the Old Testament text doesn't specifically say he was resurrected, but it implies, it infers that. And here, Peter in the New Testament is clarifying that's exactly 
what is being said here. He was not abandoned in Hades and his flesh did not experience decay because he was resurrected. The text goes on and says, God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. That is, we all, that is the 120 and specifically the, the 12. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. This is that. This that you see and you're hearing, this, these people speaking in your native languages of the magnificent works of God, this is the Holy Spirit empowering, empowering them to do it. This is the promised Holy Spirit. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens. But he himself says, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You see, that refers to the ascension. The ascension could not happen unless he was resurrected. So the resurrection and ascension here are clearly seen by, by Peter and pointed to as an explanation, an understanding for what's happening on this day, which was called the first day of the, the day of Pentecost or the first day of the church. Now let's go on to verse 36, and I want to draw the right conclusion. We first see reality, and now we have to understand reality, and now we want to draw the right conclusions. So verse 36 says, therefore let all the house of Israel know. By the way, that word know there is a present active imperative. Present tense means it's continuous action. Active means your, it's your responsibility, okay? And it's an imperative mood, which this is a command. This is a command that Peter's giving them. Let all of Israel know. You must know with certainty. The certainty has to do with be assured. You can be assured and you can know this with safety that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the sovereign Lord. He is the God man. He is the unique person in all of history. He is the protagonist of all of history. And so the right conclusion here is to know who Jesus was. And you can't have relationship with him properly unless you know who he is. He is Lord and he is Christ. So Peter wants his audience to be clear about his conclusion. He even used the imperative mood to stress the point, notwithstanding the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. His argument is soundly grounded in the empirical events understood through divine revelation. In other words, they had very real empirical evidence, and now you have divine revelation to help you understand what you're looking at. Through the sinful actions of men, God's plan was fulfilled. The events revealed with certainty that God made Jesus to be the Christ, the one appointed by God to fulfill the prophetic promise of the seed of the woman in accordance with the Protevangelum. Christ also fulfilled the Abrahamic promise, perfectly obeying, he perfectly obeyed the Mosaic law. He paid the price for the sin of mankind. He became the sacrificial lamb that takes away sins he sent to the Holy Spirit to regen us, regenerate us, and he sent the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, and he provided the basis for the new covenant. And now Jesus is working in the current era to build 
his ecclesia. The Jews in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost knew they were part of the story. They knew that what was going on there fit into the meta narrative. And we've got to learn to think like they think, recognize that God is always working out his meta narrative and we are always playing roles in it. And to really get significance in life, to really understand the purpose of life, the meaning and significance of organizations and of existence, we have to connect to the meta narrative. Now I want to just talk theologically for a moment about the, the vexing question of human responsibility and total depravity, excuse me, and divine sovereignty. For humans, one of the most vexing questions in Christianity, and perhaps second only to the issue of theodicy, is the harmony of divine sovereignty and human responsibility that is presumed by Scripture. Through the passion of Christ, though the passion of Christ was foreknown and foreordained by God, those who executed Christ were responsible for and guilty of a nefarious act. The tension between human responsibility and divine sovereignty can be seen in other texts. Not only is it here in Acts chapter 2, but it's seen in other texts. And, for example, we can see this in Romans chapter 9, verses 17 through 22, where Paul is talking about Pharaoh and how Pharaoh was raised up to serve the purpose of God. So listen to this text. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, that I might display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. In other words, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 9, 12 says that. It says, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not listen to them. That is to Moses and Aaron as the Lord had told Moses. So God does this. And you will say to me then, why then does he find fault? Or who can resist his will? And here's Paul's response to those questions. But who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? Now, that's very important, a mere man. We have to remember we are the creatures. God is the creator. He has the right to define reality as he pleases. Paul goes on, will what is formed say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? And what if God wanted to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with such with much patience, objects of wrath prepared for destruction? Now, this is a really challenging text because it seems unfair. It seems unfair that God would harden our hearts and then hold us accountable for the consequences of our hard hearts. Now that it seems very vexing, very difficult for us. But somewhere or another, it's not unjust because God has decided this is the way it's going to be. The Apostle Paul argued that God is sovereign, but man is also responsible. Paul acknowledged that this seems unfair to humans. His answer was that God is the creator and man is the creature. We are mere people and the creature can do at the creator can do as he pleases with his creatures. Mankind does not like this reality and by nature opposes it by elevating mankind and denigrating God. This is known as humanism. In other words, we reject the idea of being mere men and we try to think we're something more than mere men. 
Historically, with the resurgence of nominalism in the 14th century, humanism has been emboldened. Humanism promotes human freedom over divine sovereignty. Those who embrace humanism struggle with the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, and they resolve it by exalting human freedoms. And that's what we've done today. This is why when you hear it's all about my freedoms, it's all about my rights, it's all about what's in it for me. And you hear all the promotion about the American dream. This is all manifestations of humanism. Mankind elevating himself and now denigrating God, which means I get to do what I want to do. God is no longer the sovereign Lord. I am the Lord of my own life. For such people, one hears claims of human free will. Notwithstanding human choice, no one has complete free will. There are always limits and boundaries. For example, humans cannot live without eating and sleeping. Humans cannot decline the ultimate end of life. That is death. You can't opt out of death. Humans cannot change the date of birth or their parents. Humans cannot redefine their gender, notwithstanding there are those that claim they can. All of those and many other facts of existence are beyond human choice. At best, mankind has limited choices or limited free will which that's really an oxymoron, it's better to recognize we really don't have free will. Nevertheless, we have moral responsibility to make right choices. If scripture is authoritative, the right perspective is not exalting man over God as humanism does, but submission to the truth revealed in scripture. Scripture presents divine sovereignty and human responsibility as twin truths with no sense of inconsistency. And scripture represents God as sovereign over his creation and mankind as his servant. Notwithstanding divine revelation, humans uh, seem compelled to ask, how can God be fully sovereign and yet still hold man responsible for his choices? It seems so unfair, but nevertheless, it is true. On this point, the humans must resist self-exaltation and remember that God is the creator who in the final analysis is not fully comprehensible. His thoughts and ways are beyond us. So the question for all of us is, can we resist the inclination to be humanist and embrace the revelation of God, the creator of all, who is so beyond our creatures, so his creatures that he cannot, they cannot be fully comprehended by them. The end of this discussion can only be a conundrum for humans who struggle to comprehend a God who created and rules over his vast physical universe. Can we let God be God without requiring that we fully understand him? If so, we will accept the truths of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. But to do so, we must be willing to stand in the pain of the conundrum. Now, quickly, a word of application here. And I want to focus on biblical literacy. Dartmouth professor Sidney Finkelstein contends that people make choices based on predispositions, i.e. assumptions or statements of faith, based on experience and emotions. One of the most common statements of faith today is the assumption that there is no God. This is the predisposition of secularism and atheism. A fundamental belief of atheism is the denial of a meta-narrative. This means that there is no connection with the past, the present, and the future. Everything is random has always been random and always will be random. This tacitly denies cause and effect, a virtually universally presumed 
timeless universal principle, or TUP. Atheism, therefore, does not look to any historical prophetic record, such as scripture, to explain the present, which means that there is no this as that. Contrary to atheism, the Apostle Paul did not hesitate to explain the surprising phenomena on the day of Pentecost with a this as that argument from scripture. He connected the events of the day of Pentecost to the words of the Old Testament prophet Joel. This intimates that Peter did not did not subscribe to the randomness theory of atheism. Rather, he looked to the revelation of scripture to be able to explain the events of his day based on the writings of the Old Testament prophet Joel. In interpreting Acts, it is important to recognize the difference in the high-level biblical literacy of the early disciples compared to today, which is a low level of biblical literacy. Even some early uh, Gentiles, first-century Gentiles, valued scripture. For example, in Acts 8, there's the story of the Egyptian who was reading the book of Isaiah. Though he didn't fully understand what he was reading, the man was seeking to understand scripture. The Lord sent a disciple to explain it to him. The Egyptian instantly received the truth. Today, finding people like the Egyptian with a desire for biblical literacy is rare. Most college students lack an even rudimentary understanding of scripture, which is increasingly problematic. This is a challenge for even secular university professors who recognize the Bible as foundational for Western culture and literature. Note the quote from the Washington Times. Almost without exception, English professors, we, that is the Biblical Literacy Project, surveyed at most major colleges and universities see knowledge of the Bible as a deeply important part of good education. The virtual unanimity and depth of their response on this question was striking. The Bible is not only a sacred scripture to millions of Americans, it is also arguably, as one Northwestern professor stated, the most influential text of all Western culture. But the concern for a biblical literacy is not limited to the secular academic world. Even the Christian community recognizes a dearth of biblical literacy, even among professing Christians. The redoubtable theologian Albert Moeller said this. Researchers Gallup, George Gallup and Jip Castilli put the problem squarely. Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't read it. And because they don't read it, they have become a nation of biblical illiterates. Without biblical literacy, particularly of the divine meta-narrative, one cannot properly understand culture and history. Therefore, one cannot contextualize one's life in the plan and purpose of God. To live disconnected from the plan and purpose of God is to live a meaningless life. Consequently, professing Christians who are biblically illiterate struggle with a purposeless existence, just like non-Christians. Biola theologian Kenneth Birding summarized the situation in these words. Christians used to be known as people of one book. Sure, they read and studied and shared other books, but the book they cared about more than all other books combined was the Bible. They memorized it, meditated on it, talked about it, and taught it to others. We don't do that anymore. And in a very real sense, we're starving ourselves to death. Notwithstanding the need for biblical literacy, at the core of sound epistemology, many academics claim to be atheists, but they do not understand and conduct their research 
based on atheism, which would mean they would conduct their research based on randomness. They assume the existence of tough, timeless universal principles. Tough is not random. Tough implies order. This implies the existence of a person who has put order in the universe. This implies the existence of God. This is an essential predisposition to developing sound epistemology. The universities require TUP or there would be no universities. Therefore, they are inconsistent atheists. All of these professors at these universities using TUP but claiming to be atheists, this is hypocrisy. In other words, atheism is not a credible explanation for reality, and these people are living hypocritical lives. May Christians have the grace to repent of biblical illiteracy and become vigilant students of Scripture like the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul and even the first century Egyptian. This is the only way to escape randomness and develop a sound epistemology and find true meaning and purpose in life. May we have grace to do that in Jesus' name.